I'm just saying the band's just got the band just got some thumbs up from kids on the way out, and uh, I'm just saying I've never gotten that from any of you guys after the sermon. So maybe, maybe step up your game. <laughs> All right. Uh, we are still in the book of Genesis. Next week we will jump out of Genesis for a week for the family service as we talk about uh, the faith of uh, mustard seed side faith. But we are still in Genesis. Uh, if you haven't been with us, you can always catch up. Uh, we've been kind of walking through the stories in Genesis. We have those on podcast and video, although I think I forgot to post it this last week. So I will post a video uh, tomorrow from last week that I don't think I did. We are... Uh, in basically Jacob's kind of narrative, part of Genesis right now in chapter 28, last week we talked about um, Jacob basically um, conning his brother Esau out of his birthright and then outright stealing uh, the blessing uh, from their father by dressing up and pretending to be Esau to the blind father and then stealing that blessing from him. And the way it works then is there's only, there's only one blessing. Once it's gone, it's gone kind of thing, right? And so um, and since, we, since those verses we talked about last week, before this text today, what we know is that as Isaac was uh, getting ready to die, Esau was making plans to take revenge on his brother once his dad was gone. And Rebekah, who loved Jacob, found out about it and so sent Jacob out, right, uh, with Isaac's blessing to go find a wife someplace else instead of getting uh, a Hittite wife like uh, Esau had found a couple of that uh, the Bible says were, uh, were driving Rebecca crazy. So they, they, they don't want any more of those Hittite wives, as we all, we all know how they can be. Uh, and so we don't want any more of those. So uh, sends, sends Jacob out, really to protect him, but also eventually he will go to find a wife from, uh, from Moses' people um, back where uh, Rebecca was actually from. But right now, we are in Genesis 28, 10 through 22, and this is Jacob basically on the way to a place he's never been before, uh, having stolen and tricked people, out, uh, his brother, out of all these things, and now kind of dealing with the repercussions of that on his own out, uh, out in the world. And it says this. It says, Jacob left Beersheba and went towards Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a stairway set up on the earth, the top of it reaching heaven. And the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south, and all the families of earth shall be blessed in you and your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go, and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head, and he set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, uh, the house of God, basically, Bethel. But the name of the city was Luz at the first. Then Jacob made a vow, saying, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way, I will go, that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God, 
And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar, shall be God's house. And of, and of all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Uh, Sarah makes fun of me for a lot of things, but one of the things that she makes fun of me uh, the most about is my ability to and frequent activity around the refrigerator, and that is to go to the refrigerator, open it all the way up, and stare at it for a very long time, uh, looking for the thing that is right in front of me that I somehow cannot seem to see. The refrigerator is this black hole where everything disappears for me. She can find it in half a second. I need a spelunking helmet and a team of Sherpas to help me find And while that particular kind of blindness may be unique to me, uh, I don't think it's rare for human beings uh, to be less observant than they think that they are. In fact, studies have shown that uh, our attention uh, is far more selective than we'd like to believe. We are not even remotely reliable as eyewitnesses. If we did something in front of this whole room that was a little bit out of the ordinary right now, if I had two people run in with different colored clothes and perform some activity and run back out and then asked everyone to report what they'd seen, we'd have as many different stories as there are people in the room, even though you all saw the same thing. We're not as attentive as we'd like to think. Uh, We're not reliable eyewitnesses. We miss a lot. Uh, I heard recently a presentation by a guy named Daniel Simons that basically said you're really only able to focus on details uh, of an area about the size of your thumb. So if you go, let's just go ahead and do this right now. Go ahead, move around a little bit. Stick your, stick your thumb out in front of you. And if you right now focus on your thumb, you can begin to see some of the details of it, right? Little, those little weird wrinkles that happen on the knuckle and maybe you need a cuticle push or something. Is that what it's called, cuticle push? Yeah, cuticle push. I need that because I, I go a lot to get that done. And uh, maybe, maybe, maybe you've got little hairs on there, maybe not, I don't know. But you can see all those details. But as you focus on the details of that thumb, everything else around it kind of fuzzes out. And you, you may be kind of aware it's there, but you can't really pay attention to it. And that's kind of what you have. Wherever you move your thumb, you can kind of focus. I can see one of you at a time, really, as I'm up here, right? Our attention is far more limited than we'd like to think it is. The hardest part for those of us that struggle with attention, and I am one of those people, they didn't have a diagnosis for that when I was a kid. I probably would have received it if there had been one. But it's, it's hard to maintain focus on one thing, right? If, uh, if focus is a, uh, a small beam of light in a dark room, for those of us who struggle with attention, we tend to cast that light all over the place quickly instead of really being able to focus on one thing, right? Our attention is a delicate thing. All of this to say... That while we'd like to think that we really know what is going on around us, what is actually happening, we don't know very often. We are easily distracted. That was the cutest sneeze I've ever heard in my entire life. I want you to know that. Please get that baby a cold so that can happen more. We don't actually know what's happening around us, right? We are easily distracted, case in point. I had to talk about the sneeze, but we're easily distracted or blinded. This is the basis of most close-up magic. I don't know if you've ever been friendly with someone who really knows how to do magic, but the whole thing is based on the premise of calling your attention to a certain place so that other things can be happening outside of that scope. And then it seems like magic, but all it is is you weren't paying close attention. Right? There's nothing supernatural happened, no deep knowledge. It's just distraction. 
I think that may be why Jesus is constantly uttering that strange phrase that seems weird to us when we read all around his teachings. Let those with ears hear. Let those with eyes see. It's a strange thing to say. Unless you are very painfully aware that those around you are adept missing what's right in front of them. I think you can interpret today's scripture as primarily about this problem. It's primarily about helping Jacob to see what was really there all along. Remember, Jacob arrives at this place suffering from the fallout of his own deception and underhanded tactics, right? He has stolen a blessing and a birthright, and a lot of good it has done him at this point. He's homeless, purposeless, he's alone, traveling to someplace he doesn't know to meet people he has not yet met. He arrives at no place in particular. There's nothing really special about this place as of yet. He arrives at no place in particular and is tired enough, exhausted enough, that a rock looks like a good pillow for him. So he puts his head on that pillow and he falls asleep. And when he falls asleep, he experiences what I personally experience when I take Tylenol PM, which is narcotic-level hallucinations. Right? It's not a dream like you would normally think about. When you dream, you get transported to another place. Suddenly, you're at your home that you grew up in or you're in another state or you're in Disney World or on the moon hanging out with friends you haven't seen in a long time and weird things are happening. No, it's what happens again with me when I take that medicine, which is I sit up straight in bed. I see the room that I am sleeping in, yet the flying monkeys from Wizard of Oz are careening about the space that I'm in. It's this weird mixture of reality and dream world. And so he is sitting in this place. He has this vision. He's transported nowhere, but finally he's seeing things around him that he could not see before. The fantastic appears in his midst. Jacob sees heaven showing up on earth. The transcendent tangling up with the everyday. To borrow some prose from the poet Robert Plant, Jacob has a bustle in his hedgerow. And now he sees the stairway to heaven. Thank you, those of you old enough to know that reference. But this vision has enormous implications for Jacob. Jacob, who has not yet claimed God as his own, and God does not claim Jacob as his own yet. I'm the God of Abraham and your father. doesn't mention Jacob. It's enormous implications for him. He doesn't just see a couple of angels milling about, maybe the ones that were supposed to have helped father and grandfather in previous stories. No, he is seeing this grand scene, this busy, bustling, cosmic escalator running down and up between the two places that are not supposed to touch. There's this flurry of activity, this connection between two realities that are normally separate. I picture the ministry of magic from Harry Potter, though it's not strictly speaking in the Hebrew. It's a profound realization for Jacob. Apparently, these two realities are far more connected than he ever imagined. They are deeply connected in this place, right here, right now, in this very common nowhere that he is at. And apparently, even sleeping in the dirt at this random location with a rock for a pillow is a spiritual experience. Who would have thought? In fact, Jacob says this, quote, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. I didn't see it. Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid, and he said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, the gate of heaven. 
Theologians call this a liminal experience or a thin place where the fabric that seems to separate heaven and earth is so thin that you can see from one to the other and they begin to interact in ways that you don't anticipate or don't think should even happen. And I think we've all had these thin experiences, these liminal times in our lives. When was the last time you had a liminal experience like that? Maybe you didn't see a stairway to heaven, but you had that moment where heaven felt like it was right on top of you. It was a moment thick with holiness and transcendence, right? Maybe it was a new birth. Maybe it was a funeral. Perhaps it was the beauty of nature on full display when you were someplace that took your breath away. Maybe it was a concert. Maybe it was the music night. I believe if I'm open to experience, open to it, I experience these kind of things a lot with my kids. I don't know about you. As uh, frustrating and angry as they can be sometimes, I have these experiences with my kids often. Uh, last week, Chapman and I were by ourselves at the house for the better part of the week. We had a bachelor week at the house. And uh, he was less than excited that mom was leaving at first. In fact, the first time when he came out of his room and I said, no, mom's not here, he just uh, heaved his cup all the way across the room in anger and walked back in the room. <laughs> I was feeling very good about the dude time we were getting ready to have. But I was trying to pump him up about it. Like, it's just us guys. It's just the boys, you know, uh, here. And, and so I tried to pump him out about it. And day two, uh, I heard his door open, and I was kind of, on the edge of my seat, wondering how this day was going to start off. And when the door opened, uh, there he walked out in his little underoos and took a look around at his cute little puffy, sleepy face, which is the best face all parents know. And he looked around, and in his little voice he says, Is it just us buddies? And I said, Yeah, it's just us buddies. And he, and he kind of gave that, All right, let's do this look, and then marched boldly into the house in his underoos as he does. And I don't know why. I mean, he says cute things all the time. He's at that age. But there was something about that moment that just felt pregnant with meaning, right? It felt transcendent. It felt holy for some reason. And these liminal experiences are when we suddenly realize uh, that we can see the details of our thumb and everything around it, the context it's in, at the same time. It doesn't happen all the time, but we have these moments. It all comes into sharp focus. And our attention is expanded. When we don't just think of God or heaven, but we realize that God in heaven, but we realize that this time, this place, these hands and these feet, this earthly, fleshly life is deeply connected to the eternal. The realization that this place, as broken as it can be, is not just the holding cell we're waiting in before the real thing shows up. What is happening here? and now is deeply sacred and eternal. It's these moments when the nondescript places in our life become enchanted. But the problem comes next because we don't do enchantment very well. Right? When David Blaine would walk around on the street and do his insane magic for people on the street, they would either demand to know how it happened or they would try to cast out the demons and run away. We have a hard time sitting in enchantment, right? Enchantment is disorienting. We try to explain it, wrestle everything back to normal life. Did you notice the move that Jacob makes, even in this scene that we find in our scriptures, that he makes away from transcendence by the end of the story? Now, at first he leans into it, right? 
He sees this whole thing. He is amazed. He makes a proclamation that this is God's house. He anoints the rock and makes a monument to what has happened that he plans to revisit. He renames the place as if he has the right to. He has a transcendent moment, and he owns it for a little bit. But then Jacob does something very strange with this new epiphany. After God shows him the truth that has been hidden from him right in front of him, after God shows him this thin place between heaven and earth, when God graciously makes promises to Jacob, though Jacob has done nothing to warrant the favor of God, in fact, he's been kind of a creep up to this point. It's just been grace on top of grace on top of grace for this person who has lied and manipulated his way into this situation. And after all this grace, after all this free blessing from God, Jacob says what? Thank you? Nope. Jacob tells God about the deal that he is willing to make with the creator of all things as long as he gets what he wants from him. It says this, If God will be with me, if, if God will be with me and keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then, if then, the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And all that you give me, I will surely give one-tenth to you. What a guy. From the heaven of grace given to the earth of a quid and pro quo contract. Just like that. As if he's in any position to negotiate with God. What a great guy, willing to give up 10% of everything that is giving to, given to him for free if God just does what he wants God to do. Isn't Jacob generous? This is like my child trying to get me to buy a gallon of ice cream in exchange for them giving me a spoonful of it. No, that's my ice cream. You don't get to be generous with it in that way. Jacob is doing what we all do so often. He disenchants the moment brings it back to earth by itself. And this is our struggle as humans. We quickly forego enchantment and settle back into the world as it always has been. The demons we recognize, right? It's the opposite of faith, really. And perhaps this is why God identifies as the God of Abraham and Isaac, but not of Jacob. Yet, Jacob is not ready to have faith in the promises. He wants to make deals with God. I recently started a new book that I'm enjoying quite a bit, uh, and not just because it's got a great title, Hunting Magic Eels, by Richard Beck. But in the opening chapter, there is a quote that seemed really appropriate to this talk this week, and I want to share it with you right now. I think I put it on a slide. It says this, We think religion is a matter of belief. Something deeper and more fundamental is going on. Faith is a matter of perception. Faith isn't forcing yourself to believe in unbelievable things. Faith is overcoming attentional blindness. Faith is overcoming attentional blindness. Phrased differently, faith is about enchantment, or rather re-enchantment. The intentional recovery of a holy capacity to see and experience God in this world. The intentional recovery of a holy capacity to see and experience God in this world. Faith as a matter of perception, as overcoming attentional blindness, the recovery of the capacity to see and experience God in this world. I'm kind of in love with this idea and this quote this week. Faith 
as being attentive to the easily overlooked enchantment all around us. This helps me make some sense of God's call for us to have the faith of a child, right? Because children live in enchantment. We are the ones who grow out of it. Like Jacob laying on that hard dirt with a rock for a pillow, I think we could all use a good dose of overcoming attentional blindness. We could stand to recover the capacity to see and experience God in this world. If we could just turn off our phones, turn off our cable news, and open our eyes, we might see the truth that Jacob saw. That this world is every bit as mysterious, as enchanted now as it was when you were four. Now, since I was four years old, I personally have a few more answers. Maybe a few other explanations for things I didn't understand when I was four. Not as many as I'd like. But if I'm honest with you, it's all still a mystery to me. Just spend like three or four minutes reading about the scale of the universe that we have seen uh, through telescopes at this point. And what we don't know will make your head spin. In fact, even of what we do know, they think that 85% of what we've discovered about the universe, that 85% of what they see is actually made of what they call dark matter, which means it's just stuff we don't know what it is, but we see its effects, so we have to assume it's there. 85% we can't even identify as a thing, let alone explain it. If you sent me back 300 years in some magic time machine, knowing everything I know from living today, now, and put me amongst a group of people who could never fathom the things that we have at our fingertips now. I think an interesting thought experience is, experiment is, could I actually change their world? And uh, I think the answer is, uh, is no. I don't think I could. First, I'd show up and they'd have to feed me because I don't know how to like, grow my own food. They'd have to keep me from poisoning myself or hurting myself. And I mean, there's no grocery stores. There's none of those kind of things, right? But eventually after they fed me and uh, we sat down to talk, I would enlighten them on all the amazing things I know about the future. I would say, you don't even understand the scope of the universe. We're, first of all, the earth is not flat, uh, it's round. And we, we're in this giant universe. And you know, one day there's going to be television and telephones. And you're going you're to have in your pocket all the music ever made in the world. And, and I would start to talk about these things, right? And I would, I, would, I would tell them about this. And then they would do what any reasonable person would do, is they would begin to ask even the most basic of follow-up questions, and I'd be out. I don't know how to explain any of that. I understand that it exists. Yes, we have cell phones. I can talk to my dad in North Carolina right now if I pull it out of my pocket. How does it work? I have no idea. It's magic as far as I'm concerned. It might as well be Star Trek. I mean, I know there's science behind it because science people have told me so. I don't get it. I would be zero help. They would lock me up and try to cast the demons out because I would be a raving lunatic as far as they were concerned. I couldn't prove any of it. I don't understand anything. I've just fooled myself into thinking this world is less mysterious than it is. We aren't as grown as we think we are. So what do we think about this? What do we do about this? Maybe this week, maybe our exercise of faith this week is to work a little bit on this attentional blindness. To once again try to own the fact that every square inch of this world is enchanted if we just have the eyes to see it. That heaven is in fact all around us. To open our eyes and ears once again 
to the grand, beautiful mystery that is this world and God's creation. To quit our thumb-gazing and let the immensity of all this grace make sacred the places that we take for granted. May we, as people of faith, try to recover a holy capacity to see and experience God in this world once again. So we might really know those thin places in our lives. Let's pray.